Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information and advisory services partner for emerging market executives. We partner with business leaders at over 230 multinationals by providing them with advisory support, information assets, and consulting services that help inform and empower their emerging markets growth strategy. The focus of today's podcast is a discussion regarding FSG's recently released flagship study on the future of Chinese urbanization. My name is Richard Leggett, and I'm the CEO of Frontier Strategy Group, and I'm joined today from Singapore, FSG's APAC headquarters, by Joseph Jelinek, FSG's Senior Analyst for China. As a reminder, this study and all of our insights are available to FSG clients via our Frontier View platform. Joseph, welcome, and thanks for joining me, especially at this late hour. It's, it's a pleasure, Rich, and it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I think this is a really timely discussion regarding China, given that many of our clients are actually taking a fresh look at their Chinese strategies. And as we know, the country is going through an incredible set of transitions from an investment-led to a consumption-slash-services-led economy, and also in doing so, undertaking a massive urbanization project, while all the while trying to navigate a smooth landing in an increasingly challenging geopolitical landscape. So there's tons of us to dig into over the next 15 to 20 minutes, and uh, why don't we get go ahead and get started. So my first question is maybe at the highest level, uh, just talking about the urbanization plan, which is, in, as you frame it, uh, is all about unleashing a new growth model. What, are, what, in your view, what are the features of this growth model, and how likely is it to succeed? Sure. Um, well, China is currently undergoing uh, a once-in-a-lifetime transition uh, from an investment-focused, export-led growth model to a consumption and services-based one. The current model, uh, the, the, the model that China has been using up till now, is not a new one. Um, it's been used by a number of Asian countries in the past. Think of the Asian tigers, for example, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, South Korea. The issue is that it causes consumption as a percentage of GDP to fall dramatically. In China's case, it has been reduced to just under 38% of GDP. It also causes investments and debt to soar. So gross domestic investment was almost 50% at its peak. And while no one knows exactly what China's debt levels are, a note by UBS earlier this year put China's debt-to-GDP ratio at 277% in 2016, up from 254% the year before. That's high. Only a very small minority of countries are able to take this next step and make it through to develop country status. In order to be successful, they must get those consumption levels up. That is now required of China. So, one way to do that would be through urbanization, to move millions of rural farmers to the cities where incomes are up to three times higher. To that end, China has embarked on an ambitious urbanization drive, putting together a comprehensive blueprint called the National New Type Urbanization Plan, which it released in March 2014. It set itself a target of having 60% of the population living in cities by 2020, up from 53% in 2014. Now, to put this into some sort of context for, you, for everyone, for our listeners, uh, it plans to move the equivalent of the entire population of the Philippines by 2020, and by 2026, it intends to relocate more than the equivalent of the population of Brazil. Given the power wielded by the central government and its formidable top-down state structure that has proven adept at control and mobilizing the government's considerable resources, while the urbanization plan is admittedly ambitious, 
given the government's already impressive uh, track record, we, we believe it will almost definitely be successful. Joseph, uh, I have a, I'll move on to the next question, but I, just, just from your perspective, the, the concept of moving uh, folks from rural communities into, into cities, uh, I, I can understand how that can make sense as a blueprint, but, but when it comes down to, to people in their lives, um, what is the receptiveness of the population to this, and is it something they really want? Oh, that's, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I, I mean, I think, I think to some extent it is. Of course, you know, not everyone's going to want to move. Uh, but I think if people uh, feel that uh, they can give themselves, and more importantly their children, um, the chance of a better life um, in the cities, um, then, then I think they'll be, they'll be inclined to do so. Um, uh, let's, let's, let's face it, um, the, 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 the level of um, public services within cities is far higher uh, and the living standards um, are much higher in the cities than they are in the rural areas. So um, I, I do believe there are a number of um, incentives for, for people to want to move. But, but as I said, it doesn't mean that, that of course, everyone will do so. So as a starting point, we, we talk about how the fact that the government has to put in place some critical reforms and also some basic infrastructure in order to make this happen. Can you quickly highlight uh, those programs? Yes, absolutely. Well, and as you rightly say, I mean, to enable such an ambitious um, drive, um, there, there will be a number of important reforms um, that have to take place. Um, so first of all, um, the government wants to control where people live. Um, it doesn't want them flooding into the more developed cities on the East Coast, um, cities like Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou. Um, but it does want them to go to the so-called second and third tier cities. So the way it can do this is through uh, HUCO. Now, the HUCO is China's internal passport system. This determines where you can get access to subsidized uh, public goods like education, healthcare, um, and, the, and, and the amount of uh, pension that you will receive. So by varying the criteria to which um, urban HUCO can be attained, um, depending on the city, um, will we'll help, we'll help the government control uh, where people go. Um, the other thing that they'll need to look at will be uh, land reform. So in order to move to cities, people have to be able to sell up and move. Currently, in the countryside, um, there aren't um, established ownership and transfer rights of land. So that will need to be looked at. Um, who's going to pay for all of this? Um, is it going to be central or local government? And again, a transfer mechanism will need to be sorted out um, between um, who, who, will, who will take what in terms of liabilities and paying for the costs. Um, migrants, of course, are going to need somewhere to live. Um, will, they'll need to be provided with affordable housing. Um, and finally, if you want to get healthy, happy, productive workers and consumers, um, the government will have to address the environmental damage that has been inflicted over the last few decades. Now, as you rightly said as well, um, infrastructure outlays will be required. Um, I've mentioned affordable housing as well, uh, but people are going to be able to, they're going to need to move around. They'll need to be able to get to work, to get to the shopping centers, to educate their children in schools, to care for their sick in hospitals. That's going to require a lot of infrastructure. Um, the government um, intends to spend around $6.8 trillion on this plan. Um, it's been estimated that it will cost them $14.5 billion for every additional 1 million migrants uh, that it moves into the cities. 
Why don't we dig deeper into the urbanization program itself? Um, and, and the main feature is, is the city clustering approach. Um, and we first started talking about this in 2013 to our, to our clients. Um, but maybe you could kind of refresh the client base on the city clustering approach and also talk about kind of how it's evolved since our initial uh, research on this topic. Yes, yes, absolutely. So, um, so the government has, has developed um, a blueprint to focus on urbanization, and this is um, um, based on city clusters. Um, so the government has planned for the optimal distribution of coordinated development of cities of varied sizes and small towns along two horizontal and three vertical corridors. Uh, that span um, the breadth and width of China. And along these corridors uh, will be city clusters. Um, So um, there will be a number of these, um, the total of which will cover around uh, uh, 26% of the country, um, encompassing 81% of the economy, uh, and 95% of its industrial production. Now, each of these clusters will have an important function to play, um, cooperating and coordinating between them. Um, within the clusters as well, the cities will have uh, uh, different roles um, to play within them as well, within the clusters. Um, so strengthening commuting efficiency uh, between towns and cities, uh, promoting the establishment of metropolitan areas and commuter belts. Um, the big major cities will be decongested. Um, administrative functions, um, firms and factories um, will, will, will settle outside of the cities. Um, which will then help spread uh, development throughout the cluster. Um, so within the initial report, uh, we highlighted three superclusters. Um, with the current report, um, we've actually um, honed down on five city clusters, superclusters. Okay. And when we'll talk a little more detail. You know, we would argue that uh, our clients also need to take a clustering approach to mirror uh, what's happening uh, in the country. And so we've provided frameworks and tools and data to help our clients essentially prioritize their cluster strategy within China. And we would argue that uh, a cluster prioritization is the right approach. And ultimately, uh, there are 19 clusters in total, which you break out into three categories, the super clusters, uh, uh, the uh, emerging clusters, and then the frontier clusters. And uh, obviously, we don't have time to go through each of these clusters uh, on this discussion, although you do provide extensive details in your study. But I thought it would be helpful to discuss for our clients the prioritization methodology that you would advise they follow as they set up their China cluster strategy. Yes, absolutely. So c- companies can use FSG's proprietary city clustering market prioritization and assessment framework and tool. Um, to drive their business decisions in terms of resource allocation uh, and channel strategy. So we identified 19 city clusters. Um, So in this case, um, we had five super clusters uh, which emerged to the forefront. Um, We we came up, um, we we looked at um, the economic data for each of the clusters, um, and we looked in particularly at uh, the real the real GDP uh, absolute numbers for 2020 um, forecasted um, for these clusters, and that was uh, how we were able to rank them. Um, so, as 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 we well, what we saw was five super clusters, as I said, um, emerged to the forefront. 
Um, after that, um, there came um, a further six clusters, um, which we termed emerging clusters. Um, these were the sort of up-and-coming ones, um, or the old Rust Belt clusters in the northeast. Um, and then there were the remaining eight frontier clusters, um, which, we, yeah, which we called, uh, as I said, frontier clusters, which are predominantly located in the west of the country and have yet to be properly developed. Um, we, we looked at 223 cities um, in China's new urbanization plan. Um, and in order to evaluate the attractiveness of these um, and, and their clusters, um, we chose nine indicators according to their level of usefulness um, in determining market size and attractiveness. Um, so these indicators were combined into an index, uh, which then enabled us to create a scoring process to rank and display these cities and clusters. Um, according to their level of, of attractiveness by 2020. And each of these indicators can be weighted according to the level of use, uh, well, the level of importance in helping a company um, evaluate the attractiveness of the cities and, and their clusters. So, and it's important to note as well that while, while um, we'll get a, a cluster ranking from doing that, um, which will give you the size of the opportunity, um, which will be, of course, a key consideration. Um, companies may also uh, need to consider um, the ease of access. So we took it a step further, in fact, and um, uh, we've, we've also, uh, the tool also enables um, companies to rank cities within their clusters um, according to how the indicators have been weighted. Um, and from doing that, um, companies can then, uh, we provide what we call threshold bars which companies can move up and down to determine um, what we've called big shots. These are important up-and-coming large cities ranked as must-win markets. Uh, and new stars. These are promising small and mid-sized city cities ranked as having investment potential. Um, and then once these have been determined, um, companies can then place them on a map that we've provided in the report. And then from, from that, um, this will be the visual framework that um, can be used for companies to base their analysis and drive their business decisions in terms of resource allocation and channel strategy. That's, fa that's fascinating. And, and I, I guess one of the questions I have is, uh, are there any surprises uh, when we went through this uh, cluster approach uh, compare, comparing the clusters uh, today or even if you go back to 2013, 2014 when we first uh, started to study this uh, topic to what they'll look like by the end of 2020. Um, yes, yes, there, there absolutely were, and I, I, I think well, certainly one of one of the biggest surprises, um, well, perhaps not not so much a surprise. Um, it's more than just the, the sheer sort of size. I think um, that, that I, I'm, I'm surprised by um, was the Yangtze Yangtze River Delta cluster, and um, just by how much it will dominate. Um, even in 2020, all the other clusters, um, in terms of its sheer economic heft. Um, it will have grown by 62% from its 2013 level um, to encompass uh, more than 90% of China's, China's economy uh, uh, by 2020. Um, if you look at it by contrast, the second largest cluster after that, the Yangtze Mid-River one, will only account for 8% of China's GDP. So I think that's the first thing. Um, one thing that also that has changed, I think, um, from our previous report, um, was the emergence um, of the Shandong Bailan cluster, um, just how highly that now ranks 
um, in 2020. Um, and likewise, as I mentioned, um, also the fact that uh, the Yangtze Midriver Midriver cluster also makes it into the top five, and in fact um, is is number two. I think that's also uh, that was also quite surprising. Um, going beyond the cluster level down onto the city level, I think um, the other thing that was surprising about this was um, just just how interesting um, some of these second tier cities, how well they perform. Um, um, you know, we always hear about the likes of sort of Shanghai, Beijing, uh, but it was interesting to see how many sort of rose to the top. Um, cities like Suzhou, Hangzhou, uh, Qingdao, um, etc. Um, so I think that was also quite an interesting finding. I should take a moment to just uh, to again reiterate two wonderful features of this particular study. Uh, the report itself. First, concurrent with the report, we uh, FSG has released a comprehensive data set on 364 cities in China to assist our clients with their prioritization efforts. And then secondly, as Joseph said, the report itself contains some embedded tools to allow our clients to very quickly build their own prioritizations and to make adjustments to uh, weightings as well as adjust thresholds to indicate and identify the best clusters to fit their specific uh, strategic growth objectives. Joseph, using the FSG approach, uh, could you uh, quickly compare and contrast the results for, let's say, a company that is more B2B focused versus a B2C company? Are there, are there differences in how you would approach uh, your cluster strategy? Oh, oh yes, no, absolutely. So, I mean, so if you look at the indicators that we've, we've got, um, uh, they're going to, they will be weighted differently according to whether you're a B2B or a B2C company. Uh, a B2C company will, will obviously be focusing on the more consumer metrics that we have, uh, whereas the B2B will be focusing more on the, the industrial metrics. Um, and that will change the rankings of the cities uh, and, in, and, in fact, the clusters. Um, so in terms of comparing and contrasting, I would say that uh, when you look at it, at a, at a cluster level uh, for B2B and B2C, um, they, 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 the rankings are, are relatively similar, uh, in fact. Um, you, you get the first, um, the top three being the Yangtze River Delta, the Yangtze Mid River, and then Shandong Byland. Um, you get a little bit of differences then after that, um, depending, you know, Chengdu, Chongqing, Beijing, Tianjin, um, Will, will sort of change a position or two. Um, I think it's really when you dig down deeper, when you actually look at them, the cities within the clusters, how they score. Um, I think those those are the things uh, where you have the biggest difference, biggest differences. Um, and, and again, um, interestingly, for the B two C companies, um, how well those second tier cities do um, compared to the to the uh, standard, uh, you know. Uh, Tier one cities that we always hear about the the Guangzhou's, the the Beijing's, the the Shanghai's. Um, I think it's interesting to see, you know, a, a city like Suzhou, for example, uh, really outperforming all the other cities uh, in our B two C example. Okay, great. Um, we have little remaining time, but I did want to shift to business considerations because in your study, uh, you talk about these business implications. Uh, that our clients should think about once they've established their prioritization based on the cluster strategy. And specifically, we talk about uh, four main areas, uh, implications for go-to-market, and that's both direct and indirect, for talent management and product strategy. And I thought we could do a bit of a lightning round, if that's okay. 
uh, in our remaining time and, and quickly discuss some key takeaways for each of these areas. So I want to start with go-to-market and specifically uh, our clients' uh, approach to their indirect um, partnerships or their channel partners as they shift from a, a more provincial strategy to cluster strategies. Uh, what, are the, what are the key headlines or bits of advice there? Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think for the for, for the indirect uh, strategy, um, companies should follow a clear roadmap uh, when transitioning, um, taking a step by step approach uh, when when branching out. Um, when when uh, transitioning from from a provincial to a cluster ap- approach, um, companies should be mindful of the potential for channel conflict uh, when when realigning distributors um, to the new approach. Um, they should they should be looking at using um, FSC's framework to, act to optimize their their allocation um, of resources, and they should be avoiding channel conflict by aligning distribution partners' responsibilities with city clusters. Okay, yeah, and we have some extensive uh, content on that. Uh, many clients have a direct sales force for China, and how should they adapt their sales uh, their direct sales force approach under a cluster strategy? Yes, absolutely. So, um, MNC should, should assess the possibility of decentralizing their Chinese sales headquarters uh, by establishing sales teams across clusters to get closer to local businesses. Um, they, should, they should allocate sales personnel by cluster, um, looking at the number of big shots and new stars uh, that could reasonably serve from the cluster's hub city, uh, as well as where the neighboring hub cities might also be served. So basically, their sales structure mirrors the, the the emphasis they put in the terms of their prioritization, um, and it, it it may be tied to that as talent management. It's another major consideration for clients uh, as they shift into this cluster strategy. What what are your key uh, takeaways for for talent management? Yes, absolutely. So, um, rotating key talent from coastal cities to hubs in less developed clusters. Um, will enable headquarters to maintain influence uh, and the transfer of best practices. So companies should consider developing rotation programs whereby um, key talent from, from headquarters spends a few months a year training staff uh, from the less developed clusters in, in best practices. Okay, and then the final area we talked about is product and product portfolio. And it's obviously essential clients uh, get their product strategy and portfolio mix right for this clustering approach. What are your key recommendations for that one? Um, well, what, what I would advise um, would be to devi- uh, devising a, a tailored product strategy uh, for each type of cluster. Um, this, this will help um, companies align with the varied uh, developmental characteristics um, of the different clusters. Um, so, so companies can consider using cluster groupings um, to segment their customer base. Um, and, and profitably cater to differentiated needs. Okay, uh, Joseph, we're uh, we're up against time, uh, but I do want to thank you uh, for this interesting conversation. And I should remind our listeners that this report, all of the China City data, uh, are both available on our Frontier View platform. And of course. Uh, any client can speak to Joseph or any member of the FSG Asia Pacific research team at any time by simply reaching out via your client relationship director. This concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance across your emerging market portfolio.